Today on Ag News Daily. Probably the biggest problem with us was getting the, you know, getting the trucks out to pick up all the products, the products, because they would have to either go across the bridge, we are on an island, so the bridge on one end, or there's two different ferries. And so that's just, you know, we're not right off the highway system. Good afternoon and happy Friday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr and Delaney Howell here, ready to kick things off into the weekend. But before we do that, of course, we want to mention that today we are sponsored by Zyway Brand Fungicides by FMC. Now, Delaney, do you have any exciting weekend plans here? Well, this is going to be interesting. Maybe some of our listeners have done this before if they've had to travel anywhere, but you know, we're going to Hawaii next week. And so we have to have a negative COVID test within 72 hours of our travel and we're doing it virtually. So I'm not really sure what to expect. Basically we bought these at-home kits and I think we basically hop on like a Zoom call and somebody watches us swab our nose. I don't really know how it's going to work, but we get to do that this weekend and pack for our trip. That's the only exciting plans we've got going on really. Honestly, sounds a little bit more exciting than my weekend plans. It completely slipped my mind that you are going to be gone next week. I don't have a whole lot of weekend plans. It's been pretty chilly here. So I think that I'm just going to cook like a a good soup and watch some movies, I guess. Work on my dissertation. That's about it. Oh, that's good. You better get working on that. Yeah, I'm... I would say roughly three quarters of the way through my rough draft. So I think I'm doing pretty good. That's pretty good. I feel like you've got plenty of time still to finish that up. Yeah, I have to submit my final drafts by March 1st, and then I have to defend by April 1st, and then I'm pretty much done. That is awesome. It'll be exciting for you to be back into the real world. It will be, but I am quite nervous. So in the meantime, kind of want to distract my mind here a little bit, Delaney, but I don't think that I chose the best piece of news to kick things off with today to distract my mind because it's talking about port congestion and the shipping container shortages that we have been seeing. Mike Steenhook of the Soy Transportation Coalition, who's been on the podcast a few times, says that he expects that the West Coast port congestion and those shipping container shortages won't clear up anytime soon. He says that weather, of course, labor and pandemic related challenges will likely remain through 2022. But I think the new thing that he's paying attention to there is weather. So I'm curious to see how all this plays out and if this expectation rings true. I saw that as well, Ashton. And certainly at this point in the year, you know, we can make a lot of speculation as to trade and supply and input costs and all that and all of that. But really, it's just a speculation at this point. But speaking of trade, Ashton, we've got an update here from U.S.-China relations as over 140 bipartisan folks on both sides of the aisle and both the House and the Senate, I believe, were on board with this, sent a letter to U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai to immediately revive and expand tariff exclusion process on Chinese goods to help with U.S. manufacturers. They said in their letter to Tai that her current proposal to relaunch exclusions for a limited number of Chinese imports subject to the Section 301 tariffs is too narrow, and the tariffs paid 
since a broader exclusion program lapsed a year ago have hurt American companies and workers. So far, Representative Tai has not really issued a counter statement, but of course, we know as part of her strategy here, it's to really push China on trade commitments. And we've seen quite a few different legal battles ensuing at the WTO, but currently no statement has been issued on this letter, Ashton. Well, Delaney, you and I were talking here before we got the podcast started, and there wasn't a whole lot when it comes to news. And I have two other things that I want to talk about, but just a fair warning, they're more stories rather than, you know, hard-hitting news pieces. But I thought that this one was particularly interesting because it is concerning cotton. And I'm down here in cotton country. I hear cotton is king almost on a weekly basis. And I thought that this was pretty interesting because as, you know, cotton requires a lot of natural resources sources, you know, like water that are increasingly at risk. So botanists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison are sending 48 cotton seeds to the International Space Station in the hopes of generating ideas for more sustainable cotton production. Why they're doing this at the International Space Station, I really couldn't tell you, but one of the researchers says that in space, it's very challenging for water to get to where it needs to be and keep it away from where it shouldn't be. It's a chronic flooding situation. So I'm very interested in this piece of research and excited to see what really comes of this. Yeah, that might make a cool interview for the podcast here in the future as well. I think it certainly would be. I think I'm going to have to reach out to these researchers because I think that they would be more knowledgeable and could report on this better than I am. Absolutely. Well, we do our best, Ashton. We do our best, yes. But sometimes I feel like I fall a little bit short because my brain isn't always functioning. So I do apologize to the listeners today. It's Friday after all. That's true. It is Friday. And because it's Friday, I've got this funny piece of news today. I'm all about the weird headlines this week. This one is called Crocodile Meat Threatens to Replace Pork in Thailand. Now, Ashton, before I get into this piece of news, I, for one, have eaten alligator, but I've never eaten crocodile. What about you? I was going to say the same thing. I've had like fried alligator from Razoo's, but have never gone into the crocodile realm. I haven't either, but apparently due to African swine fever and pork supply shortages in Thailand, the market demand for crocodile meat is exploding in Thailand and has hit a really peak here for a lot of consumers that are turning their attention to eating crocodile meat, which is apparently a more cost-effective meat to eat as the price of pork continues to soar there in Thailand. So far, about 20,000 crocodiles are slaughtered each month in Thailand for their meat, which is a figure that has doubled in recent months. I think that's very strange, very interesting. You know, alligator tastes a lot like chicken. I'd be curious to know if crocodile was the same, but crocodile meat retails for about $3 per kilogram. So it is really a more cost-effective protein source there for Thai Thai, uh, consumers. I just wonder what the the texture is like compared to that of pork. That is a good question. The pictures of 
the tie or of the crocodile meat, I gotta say, don't look all that different once you get it down to the meat and you get all the scales. Do crocodiles have scales? They have something. Surely, surely a textured scales. outer <laughs> layer. After you get that off, it doesn't look all that different from pork or beef. I mean, it looks at least this photo, I should say. I'm assuming that uh, this news source has the correct photo, but it, it looks like red meat. So I don't know that you'd be able to tell a difference just by looking at it. I don't know, Delaney, maybe we'll have to do a taste test here. I don't know where we could even get crocodile. I surely could not find any in Lubbock. So maybe that's not such a good idea after all. But I just have one other thing that I wanted to hit on for today. But I'm going to go ahead and pick that up after we hear more from our sponsor for today, FMC. Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long foliar disease protection from the start. Active ingredient Flutriafol moves through your corn plants as they grow for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. Growers and retailers are sharing their Zyway brand fungicide success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. Kicking things back off here with my final story of today, and it's talking about why the food and ag sector is such a prime target for ransomware attacks. Now, we haven't seen any more ransomware attacks since you know late last year, but I think that this is certainly a big question for people as we move forward into 2022. And Michael Moore with EFC Systems says that budgets are allocating less than 1% of their gross revenues to technology, so they are easy targets. There is a lot of vulnerabilities based on limited budgets in ag, and I feel like that is fairly well known. He says that anyone in the sector with sensitive data like social security and tax identification numbers stored on computers should be prepared for ransomware attacks. And Moore also noted that ag businesses, big and small, should work in-house or third-party with technology consulting companies to implement proper security and an action plan in the event of a ransomware attack. Now, Delaney, I, of course, grew up in the age of technology. I feel like, you know, I had an iPhone when I was young. And so I haven't really seen a whole lot of, I feel like, growth as maybe some older generations have. But still, it blows my mind that we are in a society that this is something that we now have to prepare for. That is very true. And yeah, I mean, growing up, we didn't have the internet. So we didn't have internet at my house until I was a senior in high school. So I can somewhat relate to this because obviously during college and my adult life, I grew up around using internet, but yeah, it's super crazy that this is a now a new challenge to agriculture. Well, Delaney, like I mentioned there, that was my final piece of news to talk about today. So why don't you say we hop into the markets? Absolutely, Ashton. Let's do that. And today... We didn't have too terribly much excitement compared to the past couple of days. We did see a little bit of sell-off here in old crop soybeans after the massive moves we saw yesterday. And we did see a couple of small export sales reported of soybeans heading to delivery for China, as well as a pretty large shipment, 247,000 metric tons of corn headed to unknown destinations. But on this Friday afternoon, we finished grains mixed.
March corn up four and three quarters cents, closing at six fifteen and three quarters. The D new crop corn up two and three quarters cents, closing the day at five sixty five. Soybeans, as I mentioned here in the front two deferred contracts, did finish lower today. March closed 11 and a quarter cent lower at 14, 14 and a half. The November new crop soybeans closed down four pennies to end of the day at 13, 16 and a quarter. Chicago wheat lower today as well with the March contract shedding 10 and three quarters cents at 7.79 and a half. The May down eight and a quarter, settling the Friday afternoon out at 7.83 and three quarters. Hopping over to take a look at livestock today, we saw weakness in the cattle complex and strength in lean hogs. February live cattle down 40 cents today, closing at 137.92. The April down $1.07 at 142.10. In the feeder cattle pits today, the March contract shed $1.65, closing at 163.30. The April down $1.40 at 168.12 and a half. And in lean hogs today, as I mentioned, we saw some strength today as the February contract added $1.27 and a half, closing at $86.20. The April up 95 cents, closing at $94.95. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures. February today down 30 cents, closing at 2056. The March unchanged on the day, closing at 2169. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation talking about agriculture in a remote part of the US. Well, folks, today we're taking our agricultural tour over to the Pacific Northwest to look at an island. Honestly, I didn't even realize existed until maybe a month ago when I met Georgie Smith, who lives on Whidbey Island. And Georgie has a lot of different titles to her name. She is an agricultural and food writer. She is a former farmer and she lives in a very interesting part of the United States. Georgie, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be here. So, Georgie, you're the reason that I even know Whidbey Island exists, but can you tell us a little bit about where it's located and why Why do you think nobody knows about it? Well, um, Whidbey Island is located in sort of the, the skinny part of Washington State, you know, where it makes that little, little uh, comes over and then goes down little jog. Um, it's called the, the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And we've got on this actually long skinny island that uh, sort of sits right in that strait. Uh, and it's, I don't know why people uh, aren't familiar with it other than, um, you know, a lot of great places in the United States. It's actually the largest uh, island in the continental United States. And that happened once Long Island was declared a peninsula, not an island, <laughs> which happened when I was in high school. I remember we were, it was a really big deal at the time. So it's, it's about 55 miles long. Um, we have a Navy base on the north end. And then the south end of the island is, is quite close to Seattle. So, um, and I actually live in the middle of Whidbey Island. So it sort of has a, um, you know, it has a unique, different different types of, of people and communities on the island and all sort of part of the Pacific Northwest, uh, I guess you would say, um, climate and culture. And as you look at agriculture there on Whidbey Island, you used to farm, and I'm sure we'll touch on that a little bit here, but tell us a little bit more about the agricultural makeup of Whidbey Island. 
Sure. Well, there's a long history of agriculture on Whidbey Island. Um, when the Pacific Northwest was first being settled, uh, when people came to this area, of course, they were there was a lot of forests, right? So they were like trees, 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 which is great if you're trying to harvest for lumber, but not so great when you're trying to grow crops or livestock, right? So there are a few areas of natural prairies and Whidbey Island, particularly central Whidbey and north Whidbey, um, has a lot of natural uh, prairie land. Um, not quite prairie land if you think of like in Kansas, but um, a Pacific Northwest prairie. And so that meant basically it was like trees, trees, trees. Oh, no trees, right? <laughs> so so, um, so where I live um, in central Whidbey Island was one of the earlier areas that was actually settled and taken out for land grant donations. And as a matter of fact, the, the fellow who took out the land grant donation in 1852. His name was Colonel, Colonel Isaac Eby. Um, and he was really would have been probably the first um, the first governor of the Washington State Territory, except for he was actually beheaded by Indians. That's another crazy story, which we don't need to get into today. But so long story short, the, it has a, a strong agricultural history. Also, at that point, as those areas like Seattle and Olympia were developing, they needed obviously food. Um, and so, and, and the easiest way to travel in the Pacific Northwest was the waterways. So Whidbey Island and some of the smaller islands are north of us, they're called the San Juan Islands, were considered sort of the breadbasket of the Pacific Northwest at that time. And that, and that, and then and also areas like Skagit Valley, which, which are about, uh, 45 minutes from us, they were really the areas that were supporting the food production for these sort of like growing metropolis of, you know, Seattle, et cetera, area. And that really continued until um, Eastern Washington and the Columbia River was dammed for irrigation and Eastern Washington, which is much more desert-like, was really became a, a giant area of production once they had access to water. But um, so there was a big period of time really until like, the 18, I would say 1830s, 1840s, that we were really a prime area for production. And, but of course that changed and um, as, as things shifted and then also Pacific Northwest became, you know, we're, we have a lot of the large population here. Um, lots of people love to come here, both for the climate and the, the views, the landscape. So now we have this sort of, um, you know, juxtaposition between, you know, people that want to farm and grow food and then also all the people that want to live here and that driving up, uh, you know, land values and then, you know, the farmer, non-farmer conflicts. Um, also, we don't have, you know, the mills and all those things uh, like we used to on the island, trying to find those those areas, those places to take crops um, are hard now. And that, of course, is just where you've heard, we've heard, you know, for farmers all across the United States. But, so that's sort of the brief synopsis, I guess, of, of agriculture in the area up to date. <laughs> so Georgie, you know, you gave us a lot of backstory there and I think sure. that it's really interesting. I loved hearing about that because I have never been to a place like that. Didn't even mm -hmm. know that, you know, a agriculture community could really thrive on an island like that. So sure. what I want to know now is a little bit more about the challenges of raising sure. livestock there. I mean, you have a lot of experience in that facet of agriculture. So why don't we dive into that? Well, livestock. So interestingly enough, so 
So where I where I live again on Central Whibby um, has had an interesting history with livestock. Of course, my great grandfather, when he was farming, was like most small farmers at that time. Where he had, you know, he was growing crops. He had a couple dairy cows. He ran some sheep. You know, you know, did a little bit of everything. So then, as you know, as agriculture as things changed, and we started moving more towards production systems. Uh, this area of Central Whibby actually at one point was a huge um, area of, of turkey production. They used to raise several hundred thousands of turkeys in sort of this, you know, it was about probably a four or 5,000 acre area. Um, and it was all on pasture. And what they would do is they would put the turkeys on pasture. Then they would also grow some grains that they would supplement the feed for the turkeys. And that continued all the way into, gosh, I think it was the maybe the 60s when eventually turkey production really moved out into the Midwest. Um, but that was like a huge business for a long time. And there was like the guys growing the turkeys and there was the guys that were raising the poults and selling the poults to the turkey guys. <laughs> you know, So there was the big thing with that. Then the turkeys left. And then um, this area actually turned into to dairy production for quite a while. Again, because Central will be specifically, they were able to really um, raise all the, all the feed crops for the cows. Because our climate is fairly mild, they're able to grow just a lot of, um, you know, silage corn, um, alfalfa, you know, that they can silage and cut for green chop, all this sort of stuff. So it, it was a it, it was a good area to have cow uh, have dairy cows because they can produce the feed right here for the cows. And again, that continued until I, I actually grew up um, working. My first job was was feeding dairy calves um, at the dairy right down the road from us. Um, and that, the dairy business was continued until like, gosh, into the mid, I would say, I think the last dairy that sold their cows was, I think it was around 2010. And again, they sort of come to, you know, just all the, all the, the factors with that dairy all across the United States has, has had issues with, uh, probably the biggest problem with us was getting the, you know, getting the trucks out to pick up all the product, the products, because they would have to either go across the bridge. We are on an island, so it's a bridge on one end, or there's two different ferries, and so that's just you know we're not right off the highway system. You know, it's a little ways off. So, so coming out to pick up, you know, to pick up the those food stop stuffs was was uh, you know a harder go. Um, so I think that's that's kind of the the whole deal with livestock. And now now what we have really are. You know, of course, is the Pacific Northwest. Is, the people in the Pacific Northwest are huge supporters of uh, food and local food, uh, local farmers, and there is quite a growing um, contingent of of smaller scale farmers that are growing, you know, grass fed beef. Um, you know, that have opened markets and stands. In fact, one of the dairy farms that I grew up with, they they transitioned out of dairy, went into growing grass fed beef, and now they have a really successful farm stand right off the highway, gosh, farm market, like the market where they're selling their grass-fed beef. Now they do pork and chickens and sell all sorts of products for other local farmers. So, so we have, a, a, you know, there's opportunities there, but it's definitely more diversified, more selling direct marketing. Um, it's still hard. You know, there's not like, a, we don't have huge production farmers. I think the largest farmers on Wibby are probably, you know, might be running, 1500 2000 acres total so you know obviously in in the middle of the country that's nothing <laughs> you know so and obviously 
Whidbey Island has, as you've mentioned, a rich history mm-hmm. of agriculture. Your family's had a rich history of agriculture there. Sure. And I know you're not actively farming, but tell us a little bit about the farm that you guys used to farm. Sure. Well, I, we still live here. So um, uh, my family came to the area in the late 1890s. Um, and, and it was based on my great grandfather came here as a farmhand and eventually purchased um, the land that my, uh, it was about 400 acres. Um, and that was in 1919. He was able to purchase that for $30,000. Uh, and apparently it was the largest cash transaction at the time, land, land cash transaction at the time, which I always thought was funny. But um, he, so he farmed that um, and raised a family there. Um, then what happened was in the 1970s, at that point, my grandfather and his brother were farming the land and my grandfather died. They, they both had taken on by that time a debt, as most farmers did through the 60s. Um, and then my grandfather died quite suddenly young in 1970. And then his brother died um, suddenly in 1971. And so they had this farm debt plus double inheritance tax at the time. And my grandmother and her sister-in-law um, thought they were going to lose the farm. And so there was like a huge, many, many years of trying to figure out how to pay all, all these bills, you know, tax bills, creditors, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they decided they were going to, to, to pay this off. They were going to sell off some of the land, some of the less productive land um, towards the top. Uh, we, we, our, our land is located sort of on a, on a prairie with a hill on one side, and they were going to sell off some of the less productive land on that hill and to, for homes. And that was going to pay off the bills. Well, that sparked a whole uh, land land property rights battle, which I think probably was one of the first sort of land conservation property rights battles of the time. This was all happening during the 1970s. Um, and what happened was people in the community got concerned that this agricultural land was going to be sold off. And they saw that, that this whole area could essentially be turned into housing, which was a very real threat. Um, and, and so they started, you know, doing everything they could to stop this from happening. As my dad used to, would always say, he became very good friends with, you know, the, the server because he was getting served with so many legal filings every day, you know, so, oh, Ron, come in have a cup of coffee. Got some more papers for me. You know, it was, it was a very contentious time. Um, but what ended up happening out of this and took many years was there basically an effort came together between local preservation, you know, local preservation folks, the farming community, um, uh, politicians, and they designated this area as Edie's Landing National Historic Reserve, which uh, they basically created this new unit of the National Park Service they never had called a reserve. And it's a 17,572-acre area, which they designated as a cultural cultural landscape unique because of um, the history. We have a whole bunch of um, historic buildings. I live in a historic barn, actually. Um, grew up in my family's historic 1896 farmhouse. Um, and all we have a historic town. Um, and you can still see all the remnants of the early pioneer agricultural history in this area. So they said, this is unique. We need to preserve this. But they did so by designating the area, but still leaving the property owners essentially in charge. So right now, 85% of the land and reserve is still privately owned, but it's considered a unit of the National Park Service. And what that did was the government actually came and bought 
most of my family's farmland at that time for my grandmother and her sister-in-law, um, uh, except for the 20 acres around the family farmhouse. And then that land was eventually resold a few years later, actually to some of our neighbors who bought the farmland, but without uh, without developmental rights. So they're able to farm it, but of course never develop it. My family stayed on the 20 acres um, and my, my dad sort of moved out of farming at that point. He was a truck driver for many years. I sort of grew up in this agricultural community. And then when I came back to it in the 1990s, uh, late 1990s, uh, I started with just a small vegetable farm on, on our remaining 20 acres. And I did it just sort of, it was something fun to do. It was a side hustle, I guess that's what you call these things nowadays. I don't know, it was my side hustle. I was selling, I was growing vegetables and selling at the farmer's market. That eventually turned into um, farming about 15 acres. I, it was my most, I think, ever I had in production at one time, all of diversified um, vegetable production. Uh, so, you know, I planted over 200 different seeds. We were selling, I was selling mostly at that time to chefs in the Seattle area, um, which were really interested in local food and local cuisine. So I was selling vegetables to chefs and, and to some especially grocery stores. Um, and I did that, you know, the business started very small and it grew and I did that for about 20 years until 1999, labor intensive vegetable production. Uh, and it was physically hard um, on my body. Um, and it was not, you know, greatly financially rewarding, <laughs> shall we say. So, so I just I decided to take a shift. So at that point, I was like, okay, I need, I can't keep doing this. Um, so at that point, I decided to um, stop farming on our land. And then I personally shifted into um writing about agriculture because I had actually gone to college for a journalism degree and worked and worked as a newspaper reporter before I started farming. So I sort of went back to that. And so that kind of worked out to what I'm doing now, which is basically is writing um, about and for, uh, you know, ad companies about farming, um, you know, kind of telling some of these stories and that need to be told. So, and meanwhile, our farm, our farmland right now is, is being leased back to, to some of our neighbors. And eventually I would love to get, you know, we don't have a lot of farmland here, so it has to be the right situation, but I'd love to work into a situation where we're working with a small farmer that can maybe do some sort of production here again, but it takes a little while. It's complicated with family involved and all the fun stuff that farmers get to deal with. So. <laughs> So I guess that's a, maybe a long, longer story than you wanted to hear, but that's where we're at. <laughs> well, Georgie, before we move on here, going to pause our conversation to hear more from our sponsors for today, FMC. It changes everything. So says Indiana corn grower Nathan Davis about innovative Zyway LFR fungicide from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides are the first and only at-plant corn fungicides to provide unprecedented, season-long, inside-out foliar disease protection. Discover more grower and retailer success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. 
Well, Georgie, like you mentioned there, you are a writer and you write about all things, you know, agriculture. So where are you at online? So our listeners might tune in and read some of your blog posts and see what you've got going on. Um, Sure. Well, I, um, if you're on LinkedIn, I am on LinkedIn a lot. Um, I also have a medium medium profile. Um, you can find me at, um, and I'm, it's under farmer. I have a website as well called Farmer Georgie Writes. Um, you can find me at. I um, so those are probably the the most common places to find me right now. Uh, I love when I can. I, I do write for an organization called Farmer. Farmers Footprint quite a bit, um, if you're familiar with them, um, telling farmers' stories, especially regenerative um, farmers and their stories. Uh, so that's another place you can find some of my work. Um, I do work a lot as, as a copywriter for, for companies, and so you don't see my name on those pieces. But I'm really passionate about working for companies that I believe in what they're you know doing in the agricultural community. Um, I think there's a real need um, for people like me that sort of understand farming from like, you know, the sort of the cultural uh, basis, not just like, oh, this is like the cool tractor that does something cool, but uh, really understand, you know, where farmers are coming from in the industry. And, you know, I, I worked obviously in sort of direct marketing and vegetables, but my, my father, when he was farming, was a conventional farmer um, and, and my neighbors are too. So, you know, I experienced all that side of it as well. Awesome. Well, Georgie, thank you once more for coming on and chatting with us. We definitely enjoyed getting to know a little bit more about you and the island. Yeah. Well, if people, uh, Wigbound is a wonderful place to come visit. In fact, these days, it's like farming is really sort of under a microscope here because there's just people here constantly. Now we're, we're close to Seattle area. It's about an hour and a half to our drive away, depending on traffic and the ferries. But um, we're, you know, folks are always here because they enjoy coming to this area because it, you can see a working farm community. Uh, you can see land in production. You can see the old historic farmhouses. You can see things coming, you know, happening. So, you know, we're constantly having people drive by to take pictures. I always say, gosh, if I could, you know, have a nickel for every photo that somebody is taking of our farm, I'd be, you know, in independently wealthy, shall we say, but um, but it, it's it's great and sometimes it causes conflicts, but it's really fun to share um, the area because it's so important for people to see working farmland. Thanks again there to Georgie for coming on and chatting with us. Delaney, you snagged this one and I've got to say it was very interesting. Yes, I met Georgie through a fellow colleague, and I was just really blown away by the fact that I'd never heard of this island or this area out in the Pacific Northwest and thought we have to talk about agriculture in that part of the country because I think it's super interesting to learn how different agriculture is across the United States. Well, Delaney, we're going to be continuing to have some really interesting conversations next week. So folks, be sure to tune in at agnewsdaily.com to stay on top of it. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.